Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. This episode was sponsored by the PVS Studio team. It promotes static code analysis methodology in general and its PVS Studio tools in particular. Static code analyzers allow you to find bugs in source code at the development stage. This helps to reduce the price of fixing them. PVS Studio performs code analysis and issues warnings on the fragments of code with a high probability of having bugs and potential vulnerabilities in them. The tool supports C, C++, C Sharp, and Java, and it can work with Visual C++, GCC, Clang compilers, and some of those used for embedded systems. The analyzer works on Windows, Linux, and macOS. PVS Studio can both be used as a standalone tool and integrated with Visual Studio, IntelliJ IDEA, SonarCube, and so forth. In the show notes, you can find links to the PVS Studio website and the article, Technologies Used in the PVS Studio Code Analyzer for Finding Bugs and Potential Vulnerabilities. If you're building a content-oriented website, like a blog, educational site, or a company website with a lot of content, you probably were directed to use a content management system like WordPress, Drupal, or Joomla. While these systems are flexible, powerful, and have huge ecosystems around them, they have a number of downsides, especially at scale. A rising alternative to the content management system approach is to use Jamstack, which stands for JavaScript, APIs, and Markup. It's an approach to building websites that is intended to deliver better performance, security, and easier scalability. In this episode, we'll talk about this approach, and why it may be a good fit for the next app you build. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Okay, so this week has been a little nuts. I went to Detroit to interview for a job position at Quicken. I was really, really impressed. Did not get the role because of the lack of cloud experience. However, I'm still pretty favorably disposed towards them. And I got to say, I was really impressed with their operation as well as what has happened in Detroit. The city is not like what news reports make it look. It's just really a neat place at this point. So that was a downer that I didn't get that. And I found that out today. Now, the other thing I found out yesterday was that my book came out. Um, So you can get that on Amazon. It's called Surviving the Whiteboard Interview, a developer's guide to using soft skills to get hired. However, if you wait till next week, we'll actually have a discount link. I just have to figure out how to do that. They actually sent me the email about 45 minutes before we started recording, and I just didn't have time. Hey, Will, you do realize this episode is coming out a month from now, so... Yeah, it's totally fine. We'll have the link by then. (laughs) It's totally fine, though. So that happened. And so, you know, I was in the dumps about the Detroit position not working out. Had another position that looked like it was going to work. That one fell through about an hour after the Quicken thing fell through. And then I got contacted by a former client who may have some work for me. And I got pinged about another thing. And so like this whole day has been, you know, either really, really happy or really in the dumps. And I don't know from hour to hour what's going to happen next. 
I plan to go to bed after this podcast is over because I'm done with all of it, but that's this week. So how about you? Well, it's not been that extreme, but it has been an interesting week for me as well. Our media team lead, who you've heard me mention before, she's the artist that did the paintings that I used in my talk up in New York. Well, she reviewed my photos and videos that I have done the last few weeks. She had me just do a couple of things, just sort of a, a baseline to see where I was at. And we were in the office Wednesday this week for a training. So like, it's been a little weird for me, but uh, she texted me that she was about to email me her thoughts about what I had submitted to her and stuff, like all the photos and the videos I had done. And dude, I got really anxious. It just all of a sudden hit me and I was standing there talking to people. I looked down at my phone and I saw that and I'm like, it just hit. What if I'm terrible? It's the worst, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's like, what if she hates what I've done and doesn't want me on the media team anymore? I should know better, but y'all know anxiety isn't really rational. Well, apparently I impressed her with a few things, including like my steadiness with the camera. I have an eye for detail and the composition of my photos was good, which a uh, big shout out to our friend Guy, who taught me back not long after we got out of college is when I met him, how to shoot photos so you don't have to do cropping during the editing phase. And like you do that with the camera. So anyways, she sent me a very long email just detailing out everything, all the stuff that like what she liked, what I need to work on, things like that. I made a Katie chart that stands for keep add delete improve it's a little thing we came up with uh for scrum retrospectives but uh i took her email and just like broke down all the stuff that she said in there put it on sticky notes and then put it on my whiteboard under k-a-d-i and most of the things fell under either keep or improve so that was really cool a few things were under add one of them was like I need to learn my subject's body language and how they move. And, well, you'll be surprised by this one. Know when to be invisible. (laughs) That's always my strategy. (laughs) Yeah, well, as an extrovert that's also outgoing, that's a bit more difficult for me. So, yeah, that's on my ad things. I only had one thing under delete, so that was pretty cool. I only did one thing bad enough that it's like, all right, don't do this again ever. I was really happy with that. I told her, I took a picture of the board and sent it to her. I'm sure it's kind of like, wow, this is way overkill for, you know, hey, thanks for helping out kind of thing. But, you know, it's me. But uh, I'm going to take these and make action items out of them. So I really enjoy photography. And I thought I had a little bit of a talent. She told me that I do have some natural talent that she's going to help me develop. So that was really exciting to read in that email. But uh, speaking of reading, since your book came out this week, uh, guess what we're talking about in book club? Yeah, I just saw that. (laughs) So this week we are talking about Will's book, Surviving the Whiteboard Interview, a developer's guide to using soft skills to get hired. The frustration that most developers feel around whiteboard interviews and what led Will to write this book likely started back when he first got into software development and uh, first had to do those whiteboard interviews. I've heard stories about that. 
Yeah, what was interesting is I actually had a Blackboard interview <laughs> at one point. Oh, wow. That That's, tells you how old I am. Yep. Then it came up again when he was mentoring and training me as an apprentice, throwing erasers at my head and all that fun stuff. But what ultimately got the ball rolling on this book was when a friend of ours, Aaron, who's been on the podcast several times, mentioned at one of our developer launchpad meetups that how she hated the whole whiteboard process and like it's not something you can practice really easily or study for because you really need to have other people there that kind of know what's going on. That led to a discussion between Will and myself about introducing whiteboard problems to our coding jam sessions. And then Will just went all out on it and wrote an episode that was rather popular. From that, he started giving talks at local schools on surviving whiteboards, specifically National Software School, but he's done it at a couple other places. Finding that he had a larger audience than just the students he was reaching each semester. I remember when he told me he was going to write the book, I thought it was a great idea. I'm like, dude, go for it. I was overloaded. We started working on a book together and kind of had to put that on the shelf because of other things. And then he was wanting to do this one. It's like, go, man. And so it's pretty exciting to see where it's gone. Well, the interesting thing is, right, I, I wrote the book and I published on LeanPub Thanksgiving Day last year. I remember that. And within a week, A-Press hit me up and they're like, hey, expand this book and we'll publish it under our branding. And since they have a real actual marketing budget, I figured I might as well. <laughs> yeah, that is really cool, man. So... Like Will said, we're going to have a link to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, it'll be in the book club section down at the bottom of the show notes for this month as we talk about and go through his book. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, we'll probably mention it in a couple other places. I know it's been posted on social media a lot. So you guys have probably already seen it, but uh, we're going to be talking about it throughout this month. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got a comment on the user personas episode from Mick. Says sounds a lot like Grady Booch's UML actor. How would you differentiate a user persona versus an actor in UML? That's an interesting thing. I think probably the user persona is kind of the marketing counterpart to that, to the actor. It's not as formal as what you would see in UML. So it's more narrative driven and more story driven rather than being diagram driven. So there might be a correspondence, there might not, depending on what sector you're in, I guess is probably the best way to put that. So it's analogous. I don't know that it's exactly the same. The main idea here is to get the marketing folks and all the whiz-bang, you know, look, this is cool and let me sell this product folks to decide on what this thing is versus the developers deciding. So I guess it's just a different approach more than anything. That makes sense. Mick, thanks so much for posting that comment. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. In traditional content management systems, a request to a website is processed with the required data pulled from the database and then rendered as HTML in response to the request. 
While this approach makes sense to a point, it comes with a number of issues that we'll discuss shortly. Other websites may use approaches such as isomorphic rendering, which is common with JavaScript single-page apps, or SPAs, we'll call them SPAs from here on out, where bundled JavaScript is sent to the client and rendered on their machine instead of on the server. Instead of either of these approaches, the Jamstack approach is designed around static files that typically expose all the content available in the site and can be deployed to a content delivery network, or CDN. The idea is to only use APIs when they are truly required rather than when they are just a little easier. Basically, this approach seeks to front load the work of rendering pages so that the hosting server and the user machine are required to do very little to display the content. A lot of this episode's content comes from jamstack.org, which outlines specific best practices for using a Jamstack-based system, as well as providing a lot of resources around the concept. We highly recommend checking them out. So first off, we're going to talk about some examples of non-Jamstack sites and their disadvantages. So sites using a backend written in C-sharp, Node, Ruby, Python, or other server-side languages. These do tend to be older systems that predate the rise of the single-page application. Right, and these systems tend to pull data from somewhere, they render it as HTML, and send it down to the browser. These systems can be hard to extend, a lot of times due to the large amount of custom code and all the quirks that get built in over time. I know that Basically, every system I've ever worked with has had this problem. They're also really vulnerable to issues with load and security issues related to retrieving data from the back end. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about if your API is written in one of these languages, like your API sitting on the server. What we're talking about here is if the server is creating and building your HTML and JavaScript and then passing it to the browser. Right. So like if you're doing .NET, it would be ASP.NET MVC or web forms. Or if you're particularly unfortunate, it might be interdev with old school ASP classic pages. Where would Blazor fall on this? Uh, yeah, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's probably a third category, to be honest, because it doesn't have the statelessness. That's true. That's true. That's really neat. So the next category is web-based content management systems. So this is a system that's kind of a drop-in. This would be like WordPress, Joomla, Drupal, .NET, Nuke. By the way, don't ever try to say those four really fast together because you will get tongue-tied. Not that that's ever happened. Yeah, not even in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so these are pretty easy to get set up, and they have communities around them. The nice thing about them is you don't have to write custom code for the most part just to get a simple site running. They also tend to require a back-end database in order to function. Usually, there's ways to get around some of that. Because they tend to load data from the database and render it as HTML that is sent to the client, they have significant vulnerability to web-based attacks and are typically rather fragile under load. Right. So if you've got one of these websites, look for requests to slash wp-login, and you'll see a ton of them. And that is script kitties out there trying to hit WordPress sites. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing is, if you're doing anything that isn't supported by the core of the system, you tend to need plugins to accomplish that task. 
and this can lead to an entirely different set of security concerns. Our website for this podcast got hit a few years back because one of the plugins that we were using got breached and the site downloaded an update and ran it. And pretty soon we were selling knockoff purses Mm -hmm. on Complete Developer Podcast website. So if you look at our two bearded faces on the front of that website, somebody was using that to try to sell purses. I would love to know how much money they made, but they legit tried that. The last one we're going to talk about under this is custom sites that use a backend language to bundle JavaScript for isomorphic rendering on the client. A more recent trend has been to do minimal rendering on the server and rely on the client for this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is your typical single page app, like a lot of your Angular apps. Of course, there's some variants there. You know, all those kind of things tend to do this. Now, you can make things render on the server side as well you know, for Mm pre-rendering, but it's not as common as the other way. This will reduce the load on the server because you're essentially saying, hey, this is a distributed app. We're going to push this crap to the client and their CPU can deal with it. And that works great until you get on mobile and then it's slow. And you still have to pre-render server side anyway if you want things like SEO to play nice. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about the three different parts of the Jam stack. All right. First off is JavaScript. Yeah, so any dynamic parts of the front end are still going to be handled with JavaScript. This is not just a static site generator. This kind of started that way. But now we've realized that you can build apps without you know, it being completely, perfectly static. This can be anything from vanilla JavaScript to larger frameworks, right? So you could still have Angular components. You could still have React components. Those kind of things can still be on the site. It's just not the entirety of the site. Because much of the content is pre-rendered, the amount of JavaScript actually required is often a lot less than what you would think it's going to be. So compared to like an Angular site, you might just have one or two components instead of the whole site being Angular-based. Yeah, I think about our uh, developer launchpad site. I mean, it's not the best looking site in the world because we just threw it together to have something to display and it doesn't really work on mobile very well, but uh, it gets the content out there. But that's built in Hexo and there are ways to make that better in Hexo, but uh, we just haven't done them because there are better ways to do that in Hexo. We just haven't gotten to it yet. But that's what I think about with this where it's there's a little bit of JavaScript behind it to run the little functionality that there is. And most of the JavaScript is about, all right, how to load stuff and get things set up like that. Right. And sometimes some of the searching and those kind of things get in there, but there's not much. Mm -mm. If you look at our site, like there just really isn't a lot. Now, the next thing that happens is there's also APIs. This is the A in Jamstack. Any operation that needs to exist on the server for reasons such as security, gets delegated to backend APIs. So this is your login. This is payments. This is authorization to access resources. Sometimes it's some of the searching, mm-hmm. depending. You try not to do that, but it happens. And you're going to access these over HTTPS using JavaScript. Where the JavaScript comes in, that's a big part of it, is making those connections to the API. And you can build your own API or use a third-party service built by specialists in a particular area. Which I recommend, by the way, because you don't want to hand roll your own payment system or auth or any of that stuff anymore. Like it's just so nasty, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. So you can use stuff like Stripe for payments, 
Auth0 for third-party Auth or e-commerce cart management, you know, something like Snipcart. So with Jamstack, and I, I'm just curious about this, would you have the JavaScript calling each of those services individually, or would you have it go through like a central API? It depends on what you're doing. For instance, Stripe is going to have its own stuff, and you don't want uh, credit card information transiting your server. Mm. And I would probably feel the same way, honestly, about login and auth. So I would feel the same way about auth zero in that sense. I would just be like, just don't make it hit my server at all. Just leave me alone. The the other question, I guess, is with payment and stuff, you're likely going to want to store that information right somewhere. Would you have it call back into an API or would you have it call back into the JavaScript and have the JavaScript call the API? I would have it call back usually like with Stripe and stuff, because payments are going to take a minute. It comes back on a webhook Mm -hmm. anyway. So you've got an API. And so you'd be calling that to see that they do have authorization to access something. In other words, they paid for it. I would just kind of split that off. So you're calling a whole bunch of services directly from the front end. Okay. With as little as possible hitting your servers. That way you can go dirt cheap on the servers. That makes sense. Yeah, and if you want a good example of this kind of approach, if you go to Pluralsight, Rob Connery has got an excellent course on this. I think he was using Jekyll. Hmm. I went through it at some point. I just happened to remember that it was a really good course. I really recommend that. So the third part of Jamstack, the M, is markup. Templated markup is built at deploy time. This means that your markup can come from almost any data source, including data sources that you don't want to expose to the open web. That could be the file system on your computer. It can be an internal database. So you could pull stuff out of a parts list and actually build a site off of that that gets pushed outside of the edge of your network. And that's totally fine. The rendered HTML can be optimized for different devices and use cases as well. For instance, you can render both HTML and JSON depending on the consumer. So you could potentially almost have an API up there that's just static JSON that people hit and they pull down to get information about your products. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one thing that makes it easy on most of these is that they support using some form of Markdown. And Markdown makes HTML like stupid simple. It really just takes a lot of the pain points out. And so you can use this to build your content and make it play nice with the site. And it's the kind of stuff that anybody can edit without a whole lot of trouble versus HTML, which is painful. It's kind of funny because I prefer HTML because I learned HTML and then I started learning Markdown. And there's things you can't do in Markdown. They're they're not there yet. And I got really good at using Emmet. Yeah. So it's like a shortcut for HTML. And all our show notes, like I have a template that I use, but I do it all in HTML. Actually, at one point in time, our template got uh, accidentally overwritten and I had to come up with a new one. And so I tried to come up with the entire thing in one single line of Emmet and then hit tab and it like just build the whole thing. Of course you did. (laughs) I got really close. Nicely done. Yeah. (laughs) It it didn't take much tweaking to get it back to where it was supposed to be. But uh, I'm not sure there's a prize for that, but it's a pride thing. (laughs) Yeah. I understand. I mean, I would have done it too. (laughs) So now that we've talked about how these things work, let's talk about how you build them. Typically, you develop locally using your own machine. 
rather than connecting to a server until you're happy with the content and the layout. This makes Jamstack sites very easy to work on when you're on a really crappy or non-existent internet connection, provided that you can get to your data sources. This also means that you can use general purpose development tools for a lot of the work, so you're not having to go in and deal with the Gutenberg editor in WordPress. If you're a developer or you're very comfortable in WordPress to what it was previous to this, Gutenberg's pretty annoying. Especially when you have a admin and a user that have the same display name. Yeah. Because the old editor showed you their username and you could tell a difference. The new editor does not. So I'm glad we found a way to get back to it because that annoyed me a lot. Right. Whereas with this, you just use VS Code, which is what we do with our uh, dev launchpad site is we just edit it and we go on with life. Well, it's also what I do with the show notes is I build out the HTML in VS Code and then I copy and paste it over because it's so much easier to do that. Yeah, I really hate connected editors just as an aside. Like that drives me crazy. I want the state local. I don't want a network disconnect or a cookie timeout or some other junk, meaning that I lose work. That's not okay for me. Mm -hmm. The other thing this does for you is it makes distributed workflows easier when using tools like Git. Right. Provided people check things in, you can pull it down and you can edit and you can send stuff up. Again, provided that people whose name starts with B check things in. But anyway. Happened (laughs) once. Yes, but I'm going to troll you about it forever. Oh, man. <laughs> so I can't help that you didn't call me until I was standing in line to get on the plane. <laughs> Wait, you thought I was going to plan ahead? Come on, man. <laughs> so the next thing you do, Beach, is you commit your content to source control, which triggers an automated build if you've set that up. We haven't because we just don't really care that much. But if you're you know, professional about this, that's what you do. We have this at work. Automated builds are a pain. They're a royal pain to set up. I'll just tell you that right now. But once they're set up, they are so sweet. Because if anything happens, if like you send it up and it it doesn't build, if it doesn't deploy or whatever, you can see exactly where in the process something went wrong. So you can go, all right, it was something wrong with my build, which you should be building locally before you send it up there anyways. But it could be that, or it could be something on the server. It helps you find that. It really sped up the process. Yeah. GitHub and a lot of other source control systems can be set up to make a call to a webhook when something is committed to a particular branch in the system. These automated builds can also be done in a scheduled fashion. So you could do things like redeploying the site early in the morning every day, or even checking hourly for changes. What we do at work is we have feature branches for each of our main requirements on the project, and the build comes from master. So you have to do a pull request to get it into master, and it has to be approved by two separate people, one of whom has to be either the architect or one of the team leads. Right. You know, that gives you the ability to do all this kind of stuff on a content site, which is really nice Mm -hmm. in a lot of workflows, you know, and you get all the branching and merging and all that stuff too. So you can really play a lot of very interesting games with the way that you handle your workflow, potentially pushing to staging sites. So the marketing people can look, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff really here. That's very powerful. 
when I say that build, that builds to dev. And then when it's ready to move up to test, like when we're like, hey, we're ready to push to test the QA team, they have their gatekeepers. Basically, we can say it's ready to go. This build, this release is ready to go. Well, the QA team may be like, hey, we're right in the middle of testing something else. They can say hold off and then they press a button and it comes up and it's just like it's staggered like that. The automated build process is so sweet. Yeah, I just say it's really nice to have. Now, the next thing is the automated build actually runs the rendering process and pushes your code to production. And so this means that unattended and automated deployment can have your site into a live production environment very, very quickly after a push without you having to mess with it. Mm -hmm. This also means that if the production site is compromised in some way, provided that the backend source control is still secure, that all you have to do to fix it is you just redeploy. Yeah, that is sweet. Waste the hacker's time. Yeah, that's the nice thing about our developer launchpad is we can just redeploy it. It's not automated, but... It's scripted. We just have to hit the button yeah. <laughs> one time. <laughs> yeah. The automated deployment will also take care of things like cache and validation and make sure that the site is atomically updated. Right. So like if you have a big site that's got a lot of files, you don't want the update to be churning through all those files while people are browsing the site. Mm -hmm. So what you end up doing is you push to another directory on the same server and you get all the files up there. In other words, they transit the wire and they're good to go. And then you use something like rsync to switch it over or you put it into a different Docker container and then you load that one up. There's varying approaches to that. But basically the idea is that it's never in an invalid state mm -hmm. while people are looking at it. It just switches over and it's good. Also, a lot of the tools built around Jamstack allow for atomic updates. Right. That's kind of the process under the hood there. Mm -hmm. If you really want to get into the weeds, is it does that. But the thing is, if you're using a lot of things like Netlify or Lifey, I'm not sure how they pronounce it. They just go, hey, it's an atomic update and you don't have to care how it happens. Yeah. So what that means is either the old version of the site is available or the new one. Right. Not a hybrid of the two, which is not a real comfortable place to be. Mm -hmm. Similarly, since you may be deploying to a content delivery network, another thing you need to be dealing with is cache invalidation. And a lot of the tools used in Jamstack can also invalidate the cache in various ways. That will keep people from having an old copy of any of the JavaScript files mm -hmm. that were previously on your site and trying to use that against the new one because you'll get weird errors from that. And those are really hard to trace, by the way. Yeah. So next we're going to talk about build tools. Jamstack tooling handles a lot of the work of building a website out of a collection of loose files. Now, this can include packaging files into compressed formats rendering HTML, minifying and bundling JavaScript and CSS, and even image resizing and optimization. Now, these tasks happen transparently on a server as a result of a trigger of some kind. And those triggers can be anything from a commit to a certain branch, a regularly scheduled task, or even a call to a webhook. Yeah, and once the relevant files are created locally, the build server will then copy these files to a staging location on the remote server. And you can directly copy to production. That is, by the way, what we do on Dev Launchpad because it's such a small site and it's so quick. It just really doesn't matter. And 
we typically only remember it at like midnight the night before anyway. So nobody's on there probably, <laughs> or, you know, 10 minutes before we need it. Regardless, we're not copying to a staging location is basically what I'm trying to say, but it is pretty common practice to deploy to another location on the same server first, and then copy over to the new location from there. That way, if the copy process gets interrupted, the site isn't messed up in the interim. Mm-hmm. If files are being deployed to a content delivery network, the build script should do so. CDNs can take care of making sure that the required files are deployed close to the people who are accessing them. What this means under the hood is that a lot of copies of the same files are distributed across the internet. Yeah, the typical expectation with CDNs is that your files will be eventually updated, not immediately updated. Of course, mm-hmm. this is eventual versus immediate, and that kind of depends on your service level agreement with the CDN provider. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about how content is built. Most of them just straight up use Markdown on disk for most of the content because Markdown is really easy to convert to HTML. It's built to be easy to use, you know, even for non-technical people. There's tons of editors out there for it. The other thing that they tend to vary from the norm as far as like markdown is they will put a section at the beginning that's called the front matter and that typically specifies metadata about that piece of content so it's not just the content but it's the content about the content that they kind of ship with the files and that just makes it easy to keep all those pieces together and if you want to look at a good markdown tutorial to understand kind of what that is there is a website called daring fireball that actually has an Excellent markdown tutorial. It's the one I always use when I need a reference. I've never run into anything that wasn't in there that I needed that could actually be done in markdown. So just go check that out. We'll have that for you in the show notes. Content can also come out of another system. So like headless CMS systems are good for this. They allow content creators to write content that is then exposed through an API. Yeah. (laughs) You could also use WordPress as your editor on an internal site and then expose your content through GraphQL and other API types. Yeah, I wouldn't do it, but you can. Yeah, I would. (laughs) Yeah, because like my thought of I want to use WordPress as an editor is like, I'm just trying to think of something that's like that bad. Like, I don't know, I want to use a hammer for dental work. I just, I can't think of anything that is something in that range, but there's probably somebody out there that's like, oh, WordPress is great for that. Then you can go do that. The point of this is that the content is retrieved at build time rather than at runtime. And so you pull it in, you use it to generate the content, and then you push the content out and nothing is hitting that server that serves the content afterward. Images and other assets may be transformed during the build process. So there is a lot less to do in the content development side of the system. Uh, For instance, you might transform images into various sizes so that they can display at different contexts. And we do this on our podcast website based on what you're at. Like certain images just don't display on mobile. Right. The image of the two of us are, are. was it iTunes? Yeah, because you have to turn the phone sideways like you're filming something for World Star to be able to see that. Yeah, and I set that up on purpose because what was happening is it was just taking up like the whole, it would shrink the image down to the right size, but it would just, it would take up and it was like, this is wasted space. 
Yeah. You know, when you're on mobile, that was just useless. And you want to get to the content as fast as possible. So I did that on purpose there. Yeah. With CSS. And the other thing you might want to do, other than messing around with images and hiding and showing and resizing and doing all that stuff, is you might want to compress and minify JavaScript and CSS files. That really, really helps with the download speed. Yeah. This is also a good place to render other views of your data. So a lot of these sites will generate an index that is JSON-based. And it'll actually pull the index down to the client site when they hit the server and it searches on their machine instead of yours. So it's just a really clever way to do that. You can create things like RSS feeds, tag pages, category pages, those kind of things, you know, image galleries, potentially. A lot of that stuff can be done in this step, and then it's not a burden on the server later. No. So some commonly used Jamstack tools, and again, this is just some of the common ones. Jekyll, the granddaddy of them all, yeah, that was basically the first one that I heard of. And then Hexo, which we use. Mm-hmm. Gatsby is really neat as well. It's kind of a React-based tooling. But the nice thing about it is that it's built around GraphQL as well. And so it's got a lot of stuff built in there for actually hitting APIs to pull data down and render it as a static site. Whereas Hexo and some of these others, it's kind of not pleasant to try to make that work. Mm-hmm. Then there's Hugo which is built around the Go language. Right, and that's crazy fast for rendering, from what I've heard. Another one is Next.js, which will kind of build statically exported React apps. I have not used that because I'm kind of terrible at React. I've played with it, but I'm just not good enough. There's also other outputs. So there's stuff like Gitbook. And so Gitbook will actually build a book instead of a website, You know, using these same principles. Initially, when I built the book that dropped yesterday, I built it in Markdown and it was rendered using something like this on the back end of LeanPub. I'm not exactly sure what they use, but it was the same kind of principle. There are a few pain points. I remember those conversations. <sighs> yeah, those conversations. Dude, you didn't even have to say anything in those conversations. It was like, all right, just let Will just blow off all the steam. <laughs> yep. And then type, that sucks. And yep. go on with life. Like, <laughs> That's exactly there wasn't a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Just call it what it okay. is. All right. All right. That's true. But y'all, there's more of these at staticgen.com, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Next, we're going to talk about handling server side stuff and all that's involved there. Yeah. So if you're building a site, you still probably need a web server involved at some level, right? You've got some kind of concern there might be payments, it might be authentication, it might be security-sensitive pieces that still have to be done. You don't want to have to rewrite the site and switch from a static site to a CMS or something like that just because you added one dynamic piece. Mm -hmm. So you can build the back end. You can also use tools built by people who are specialists in that problem domain, and I would suggest doing that, by the way. If you are using third-party systems, so this is like your payment systems, those kind of things, they also tend to have already built the required backends to support those. So you end up only working on things that distinguish your site from the others. So like your payment gateway might go to Stripe, and then when your accountant goes in there, you're not having to build the interface for that guy. So it's just an easier way to handle it. Yeah. Again, like we talked about earlier, you'll generally be accessing third-party APIs using JavaScript and HTTPS. 
by the way, HTTPS is a lot cheaper now than it used to be because you can get a certificate, you know, like let's encrypt and you just go on with life. That's free. Also, if you aren't doing anything security critical on your own site, the APIs you use will be responsible for maintaining their own security infrastructure, which is really nice. It's one of the great things about using a third-party payment system. Yes, because PCI compliance, holy cow, I don't want to be near that. I mean, I'm getting that way with HIPAA, too. Yeah. But PCI, like, it is beyond the pale. Like, just no. I don't want credit card numbers ever touching any hardware I own. Now we're going to talk about a couple of the downsides of the Jamstack. And first off, a few things are more difficult with Jamstack. If your site is membership-based, you probably don't want your members-only assets to go through the pipeline that builds the rest of your site because that adds overhead to the process. Yeah, and people can get to it, right? Because those things are publicly accessible. So what you end up having to do is you have to put those things somewhere else and restrict access. Now, it takes a fair bit more effort to set up a Jamstack-based site than it does to set up a WordPress site. Like I can have a WordPress site up in probably 30 minutes tops if everything goes wrong because they made it really, really easy. Now, that does not mean it would be a aesthetically pleasing WordPress site. No, but it wouldn't be if I worked on it for 100 days either because I'm not a designer. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I wasn't getting at that. I was just saying that it would be a functional site. You wouldn't have put time into getting the look and feel. Right. Or it'd be a dysfunctional site, but it would run. Yeah, well, that's true. (laughs) And clients would run away from it when they saw it, but it would work. (laughs) You're going to need some familiarity with the tool chain that you're using to build your site. You have a lot more flexibility with Jamstack than other types of sites. And this can make it more challenging to get a good solution out the door quickly. Yeah, especially if you're doing anything weird, which you probably are. Yeah. And weird means, hey, it's not a standard issue blog. The other thing that can be kind of a pain point with Jamstack sites is all the integrations. It's really common for third-party services to offer pre-built components to integrate with their system. It's not common for them to do that for static site builders. So they'll build something for WordPress and Drupal and all that. You're not going to get a Hexo plugin to talk to something. Like, you're going to write that. They're actually starting to come out with some. Yeah, like for Jekyll, especially in some of those. Yeah, but they're way behind the game on stuff like WordPress plugins. Right. You just got to understand when you go into this, you're on plebe tier. You're not, Yeah. you know, you're not getting the kind of market attention. And this can mean dealing with other people's APIs and potentially having to quickly update in response to changes, which is the main actual point of suffering. It's not just that you have to write stuff to make it work, but when they break it, it's your problem. It's not just an update that you pull in. Mm -hmm. So finally, we're going to talk about what Jamstack can do for you. Hosting static sites is far cheaper and requires a lot less maintenance. It really is true. The sites are basically JavaScript, CSS, and HTML with a few other file types. Hosting is often dirt cheap or free. I know like with Hexo, we don't even write CSS. It's stylus. Yeah. Which was popular, I guess, in certain areas when Hexo first came out. But now everyone is using SAS or less. Yeah, it was really popular, I think, in China when that came out because it's got a a pretty heavy Chinese influence. So like if you look at the docs, you end up using Google Translate a little bit more than I would like. Yeah. 
But yeah, it is so cheap to host these sites. Like you could put a $5 digital ocean droplet out there, you know, $5 a month hosting and probably host like 30 or 40 of these sites. They're tiny. That's true. That also makes it really easy to switch web hosts. A lot of the time you just deploy to a different location. Yeah. So you just need SSH or SFTP access. You change your credentials and the endpoint that you're going to and you're done. Well, after the next redeploy. Yeah. I, like we were talking about with the automated stuff, like a lot of these, I know Hexo has a deploy script built into it. Yeah. You just go into the config stuff, JSON configs, and you put in your information and then you just type in Hexo deploy and it, it sends that out there. Unless you're on Comcast and you're using FTP because in their infinite wisdom, they decided to close it off. So we always deploy from Nashville Software School <laughs> because we haven't changed the script yet, but whatever. You do. I don't have to because I don't have Comcast anymore. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're on real internet. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're know, not going to say anything demeaning. No. The other thing that Jamstack can do is it can save you a lot of security pain. Yeah, so your big content management systems are subject to constant attack. WordPress is awful for this. As an example, David Whitley, who came on this podcast, what, two years ago, three years ago at this point, on April 1st, I used to host his website, right? He had like four different websites, but he had one big one. And I can remember one time when he was on the plane flying to Ireland and his website got 30,000 login attempts within an hour. That's a lot. Yeah. Like 1130 at night when I needed to get up at five in the morning, I had to go like mess with the WP configs and the Apache configs to basically just go, nobody can log in, just like go away. And when you deal with WordPress, you either pay somebody to do that or you do it yourself. And usually it's both. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of been our pain point with our site is like we're having to pay. You know, we've had a break in on the site where we had to go and mess with it. I had to pay a company to go in and clean up stuff that was showing up in the site map. It really bothers me a lot, by the way, that they tried to sell knockoff purses. Like there's a lot of things that I could see selling on our site, but that's not one of them. <laughs> you know, I don't think they looked at the site. It was just because yeah, I really legit want to know, like, should I open up a purse store? Like, yeah, you know, right. Maybe these guys are onto something, you know, maybe if you look like Hagrid on uh, Harry Potter, you can sell purses, but I don't think so. Hey, if, if you open up a purse store, call it Hagrid's purses. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, so we went way off topic on that, but whatever. The thing is, is when there's no back end, it really limits the available attack surface, right? Now they have to go after the APIs and the stuff that... Is probably already well protected. So your payment processors, like they have audits, they do all kinds of crazy stuff. Same thing with your auth. All those things are already handled and it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. Also, mitigating a hack is a lot easier because you just redeploy. Yeah. And by the way, this might mean a hack that's not necessarily on you, right? Like if your web host gets hit, they get DDoSed. You can just redeploy somewhere else. And as long as your domain isn't through them, which it shouldn't be, you point it somewhere else and you go on with life. Yeah. You can even have a failover location that you deploy to and you can just swap things. That's perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. So guys, the Jamstack is a response to some of the problems caused by more traditional approaches to the development of content-heavy websites. It makes it easier to scale sites, 
reduces the attack surface of the content sites and can often be substantially cheaper to host. While it doesn't solve every problem out there, it's a good way to think about how you serve up your content sites. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Yeah, I talked earlier about how this whole week has been so many different ups and downs, right? The day job is ending tomorrow. I don't have something else yet. I had a book come out. I wasn't told about it on time. There was a job opportunity that didn't work. Then there was another job opportunity that didn't work. Then there was another one that looks like it might. Then there was a client that called me and that looks good too. And then it looks like I may have some other contract work as well. And I just want to explain to you that it is very valuable to be able to look at a situation like this and realize that it's okay to not emotionally react for a bit. Just look at it and go, okay, that happened. I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to deal with something else because it can change on a dime, especially when a lot of stuff is going on. And you kind of need to be able to hang on to some degree of emotional coherence that isn't necessarily based on stuff that is volatile. And I just found that really valuable this week because while emotionally it was a lot of up and downs, I really didn't change the way I handled anything that was pretty valuable. So that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Complete Dev Pod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.